This is an oral history interview with Burl Bernhard for the Robert J. Dole Institute of Politics at the University of Kansas. We are in Mr. Bernhard's Washington Law Office of D.L. Piper, and today is Thursday, November 29, 2007, and I'm Brian Williams. Let's start out with um, your earliest recollections of Senator Dole and contacts with him prior to his coming to your firm. Well, we are in, have been, and are in opposite political parties. Therefore, my exposure to Senator Dole was somewhat limited, save for uh, the time when I was campaign manager for the presidential aspirations of Senator Muskie. And uh, Senator Dole at that point was chairman of the Republican Party. And during the course of that campaign, every stop or every other stop we would make, suddenly there would be an appearance from someone named Senator Dole, who would say, what Senator Muskie told you is not entirely accurate. I'll give you the real facts. And then he would uh, attempt to destroy our effort. He did pretty well at it. He was a, he was a rough customer also very engaging and, and had that acerbic humor. Uh, but at one point, um, I remember, I believe it could have been in Indianapolis when Senator Muskie gave a, what I thought, since I wrote some of the great speech, and uh, uh, Senator Dole took off after what we had said. and. Uh, I was asked at a press conference later that night about Senator Dole's reaction to what Muskie had said, and I said, oh, it was just truth assassination. <laughs> and so I remembered that after I started to talk to him about coming with the uh, law firm. But I had, I had seen him because Senator Mitchell and I had kind of grown up in the Muskie family, and um, so I knew about Senator Mitchell's relationships with Bob and uh, and the respect that they had had for each other. It was, I was always impressed with the fact that uh, Senator Mitchell would say to me, you know, Bob and I do what needs to be done for the good of the country, and that is put partisanship aside we have to work together, and when we were both in town, uh, we would spend time with each other, whether I was minority leader or he was minority leader and I was majority or he was majority, we got together. So as, as Bob Dole had said to George, I don't think it's helpful for either one of us to rely on surprises. Uh, and so when I went to see Bob about coming with the firm, uh, George Mitchell had already come here, had committed to come here, and uh, Lloyd Benson had committed to come here, and the first thing Senator Dole said to me was, I want to talk to George about this, and which he did, and there was that overriding aura of mutual respect between the two of them. And I think it had a major impact on why he came here, because he wanted to be with George. 
from our standpoint, it was really important to get someone well-known, well-respected, and identified with the Republican Party, because you, you don't have a firm in Washington if it's just one-sided. While we were a law firm, we all ha also had a very substantial uh, Washington practice, which is regulatory, legislative, administration, and that kind of thing. And it was very important to have him. So, uh, and when I have to say, when he arrived, he arrived with full steam. I mean, it was not a casual uh, arrival because I, I guess I did not know uh, just how determined a person he was to be effective and to succeed. And whether it was in our law firm or whether it had been in politics, uh, it, Bob was a unique person in terms of absolute determination to make things work. He was, he was reality. And uh, he also was possessed of this wonderful sense of humor about things. It was kind of, he had an ironic touch about finding something <clears throat> peculiar or bizarre about what was taking place. And it, it made a big difference. I, uh, <clears throat> I remember when um, we had a party for him, and Ann Richards introduced him. Uh, she had already come here, and it was really very funny. And it, Bob's reaction to it, on his own, spontaneously, was about as funny as her introduction. And it was that kind of, he could pick up nuances and the funny side of the most serious things and make, make a joke of them. He was a, but I want to say one thing, um, which I think, to me, is of overriding importance. Uh, Bob was a great American. No one would ever deny that. Um, I saw a lot of it when we had, I went to the opening of the Bob Dole Institute in Kansas, and uh, the reverence that he had, respect and love he had for George McGovern, always struck me as representative uh, Bob Dole's point of view, which was, you know, respect for s what someone has done. Partisanship was very important to him as a politician, but not when it came to respect for what other people had accomplished, like George McGovern as a bomber pilot, which no one ever heard of during his campaign, which also said a lot. Uh, but the feeling that you shared a common experience that was good for the country. I, I don't know of anybody that I have met that cared more about the overall good of the country than Bob Dole. That's one thing. But there's something to me was even more important and is more important. He is about as concerned a human being about others. It's very personal. I know during the period he was here, if there were any problems for, that individuals had, you went to talk to Bob Dole. If someone got sick and Bob Dole knew someone, I don't know how many times he, had, he called his friends at Johns Hopkins or at other hospitals to try to help people. There was something that he doesn't always show because he, he has that 
the extrinsic kind of appearance of being a tough uh, leader. He is the warmest soul that you will ever meet. Uh, I saw it the way he dealt with Elizabeth, uh, and uh, I, you know I got to know her well because of other things that we did with the Red Cross, particularly, and I was involved in the with uh, uh, Sandra Mitchell uh, and Elizabeth on the reconstruction of the Liberty Disaster Fund after 9/11, and we went to talk, I don't know how many times, to Bob to get his view of how to deal with the families and uh, what had to be done to, to alleviate some of their suffering and their pain. And it was not just the families, it was the, some of the people who had been burned badly. Uh, Bob was there. I mean, I, I can't fully, you know, articulate, articulate what how to express this, but he, he cares. He cares on a human level. Not, it's not just for show, not for political gain. It's there. It's, he's got a heart. Good. Um, is that, uh, but I feel this. I, mean, I know, I know. <coughs> if, is there anything else you feel that you want to just say right now, or I have questions to ask? Well, why don't you go ahead and ask me, and I may come back okay. to okay. it. Um, let's go back to uh, when he was chairman of the party. Right. Um, and you mentioned that he was popping up uh, on various right. musky campaign right. stuff. Right. What, what format did that take? I mean, who was he talking to, and where was he? And, and well, I, I, you know, I don't know exactly where he was or where he was making his uh, comments uh, or criticizing some of the positions that we were taking, but all of a sudden there'd be, Bob Dole said after Senator Muskie spoke, whether he was right in the cities with us, whether he was traveling and talking in general during the campaign, I don't know. Uh, but it, it, there were dull comments all along the campaign trail, I can tell you. <laughs> I got used to them. <laughs> they were pretty good, too. He can be quite acerbic. Right, right. So did you have any contact with him while he was a senator? Well, I, I limited some. Um, you know, when you, you, when you deal in Washington, uh, you really cannot deal with a single party. You have to deal with people who uh, are the decision makers. I did have some contacts with him when he was chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. Uh, and... Uh, he said something that was really funny. I have to. This is. He, when I was talking to him about coming with the firm, he said, "Well, when did we talk about any legislative issues?" And I said, "Well, um, a few times when you were chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, I came up representing some people. I wanted to talk to you about." And he said, well, how many times? And I said, well, Bob, I think maybe three. He said, did I ever give you what you wanted? And I said, as a matter of fact, no. And he said, oh, then I'm quite pleased to think about coming to the firm. <laughs> so that was Bob. 
so but it was relatively you know it was it was more a prof a professional it was not something where um, you know we became friends or got to know each other very well it was really after he came with the firm that uh, I got to work with him a lot uh, you know uh, all the time because uh, we always tried from the very beginning to involve him in some of the with some of the clients we had uh, and he was made himself available like no one else I had ever seen I mean he was always available if he could help and uh, we we did some really interesting things together involving everything from uh, Cyprus to Taiwan to other kinds of things like that and no one was more committed. I, I don't, I, I wrote him after I failed to convince him to come with a larger firm when we merged the firm. And I wrote him, which I really believe uh, that no one I ever met had come to a new job running as hard as he did and as quickly as he did. He loved it. And he was the only one who could talk about joking about keeping time, which he, you know, you have to keep your hours, Bob, so that we can send out a bill. And uh, he would say, well, I, I've been thinking about a lot of things. That's about 10 hours, isn't it? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. But he was, he was really good. I mean, it was, uh, uh, I, I, let me, let me just put it in another context. There are a number of people who have been in national public life who are very smart and very effective, but they don't necessarily think that their careers, having been concluded on a high level, require hard work when they move into another situation. Bob was the opposite. And I, you'd have to have heard him speak to clients. You'd have to have heard him speak when we'd have various receptions. And he'd always end up with some comment like, my door is open, I'm available, I can represent you, the rates aren't bad, come on, you know, that kind of thing. And we, it was always fun. And, and I think people just rallied to him. He was, he was, he was, he was an adult and a, a person of size. And you knew it when you were dealing with him. So. Um, <clears throat> talk a little bit about the firm. Um, you were one of the founders, and, no, and was. you created it in '60. Yeah, 1960. Um, and uh, yeah, it was. Uh, and we, we were just two of us that really started, and then three. And um, but that was about the same time Bob was getting started in in public life, and it, that's what was somewhat kind of ironic that we all got together subsequently, but we did. We started the firm. The firm grew to about 150 lawyers. Uh, much of the success of it was um, because of people like Bob and George Mitchell, Lloyd Benson and Richards, those, those people. Uh, but the firm did a great deal of aviation work, uh, communications work, uh, a, a significant amount of international representation and and Bob was interested willing and desire desiring of participating in all of it uh, 
And of course, he had Joanne Coe, which who you must have heard about. Uh, she ran that office like the sergeant at Quantico, okay, and ran it effectively and efficiently. And and uh, she was she was blunt, honest, direct, and very helpful to him. Because the one thing that I found out as I began to work with him, you could not and should not cut corners with him in terms of bad news or difficult problems. Lay it out. And that's what Joanne did with him on the administrative level. And I tried to do it with him when we had issues. And uh, he could become very combative uh, if he disagreed, but it never, never, never ended up where there was, it was personal. He always had this capacity to avoid anything deteriorating into personal animus or uh, a, a continuum of unhappiness or something. Whatever you had was right there. And uh, it was done. I, I have to just, I, I would be amiss if I didn't say there are almost no people I've met in my life that I ended up with greater respect than I have for Bob Bill. He is the real thing. He is the leader that this country should welcome, you know, and always has. I don't know, the presidential, I, I don't know if I ever mentioned this, but one time I did ask, I said, Bob, you know, now that I've really gotten to know you better, you're everything this country needs. You're everything that sh which, which compels me to believe you should have been president. And I, I you know, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm perplexed why it didn't go that well in your campaign. And he said two things which I have remembered very well. The first one was, well, you know, I never gained control of all parts of my own party, including the hardcore, very conservative groups. And so I was always trying to accommodate all the divergent groups, and therefore I never had one absolutely clean message. That, that was one thing. And I knew that was a problem. And the second one was, he said, you know, and I was running against the most telegenically uh, brilliant campaigner, I think, darn near in this century. And I think both those things were true. And the campaign did not reflect, to me, the Bob Dole I got to know at all. Uh, I, I wish the country could have seen Bob the way I got to know him later on um, because it was, I always felt this was a person that you could repose total confidence in and he cared. I keep thinking about Bob as a caring human being. He, he cared but he also knew uh, what the country needed. He believed it and he always put I never heard Bob say something where 
even if it were a cutting partisan comment about something, it always came back to extending to what is good for the country. I, 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 I don't want to overstate it, but that's just the way I felt about it and the years together. What do you say to people whose sort of lingering recollection of Bob Dole, yes. like on the morning talk show, Sunday morning talk shows and whatnot, as hard-hitting, bitter? Yeah. Well, let me, let me say, I did not know Bob Dole in the early days. Um, I think he was uh, cutting on those. I think he was very strident. Uh, he he as as you know uh, he's he's very smart. He certainly is politically adept, and uh, with his very sharp tongue, particularly in those days, I think he came out on a, a number of these things as the 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 hard driving uh, partisan. Uh, very denigrating of his opponents, and I think that was probably a phase of his life um, in terms of gaining the leadership of his own party. Some of that was acceptable, and I think he changed later. From my recollection of those early morning shows, that there was very little humor to it. It was tough, uh, and as I said. Um, I don't, I don't think it was ever laced with something that made you feel good. It was, it was cutting. And he changed. We, I mean, people do change. And I think it wasn't change on a calculated basis. I want to be liked more. I just think he got a much broader view of how people responded to leadership and it wasn't just by cutting others down it was a feeling that you and I are one and we have common interests and good humor is a way to connect and good feeling is a way to connect and always being hypercritical of others is not a way to connect and I think he began I don't think it was a, as it may have been conscious because he's awful smart and he may have realized that this was no way to become the national leader. But he changed. I think he changed dramatically. And if you look at, at the period when I got to know him while we were on a lot of shows, when he was working that hard on the World War II movement, it was always, um, I think he left you feeling good whether you agreed or disagreed with him. And that was part of a different Bob Dole. That's my view. Which probably the big change probably came, would you say, after he left public office, where he was freed up to not be partisan anymore? Uh, I, he, yes, I think that may be true. And the fact is, when he left the Senate, uh, he left at a at a high point. Uh, he left with great respect, bipartisan respect, and had earned it. And I think he knew he had earned it. And I knew, and I believe, even though it was a terrible downer for him, having lost the presidential election, 
And since I was once campaign manager for someone who lost worse uh, early on, um, that's a biting experience. And I think he was hurting, uh, as anybody would, uh, after that. And there were also there were monetary debts from the campaign, and I did work with him on some of those. Uh, we got them all cleaned up. And, you know, he wanted to get that behind him, so we worked on that early on. But um, he, he, yes, you, I, I think that he, he saw himself much more as a national and international leader than as someone who had the responsibility to draw the lines between the parties. I, I really think it was a different Bob Dole, and, and to me, the greatest part of his life. Did he ever express to you regret for having left the Senate? No, he didn't. Uh, no, he didn't. Uh, he may have felt that way uh, because it's, it's a clear power base uh, from which you can accomplish a great number of things. And if you knew Bob, the reason he might have felt that way would not have been just the loss to himself of that, but not having the capability of the power to make changes that he thought were warranted or necessary. But he never expressed that to me. You know, the fact is, I think he accomplished a huge amount being out of that power base and free to be a leader and not just follow what appeared to be a way to respond to necessary votes in the Senate. And that's a big difference. So. When he arrived at the firm, uh, was he still sort of suffering from defeat, or what was his mood like, do you, th do you recall? If, if he were suffering, uh, he didn't show it. Uh, he was, uh, I would say, very high-spirited. He saw it uh, absolutely as a grand new challenge and a new stage, and he did it preeminently well. Uh, I, I never saw that side of him where he, he reflected the, the uh, disappointments of not being in office or having lost the presidential effort. He was, he, was, he was committed. I mean, as I said, I, I've never seen anybody arrive at something that he hadn't ever really done and show so much joy and verve about it. Were you the main suitor? Oh, you mean for him to come, as opposed to other firms? And opposed to other people in your firm. Did you do most of the... Uh, I did a lot, sure. Uh, George Mitchell did his share, no question about that. And Lloyd Benson talked to him. Uh, but I, uh, you know, have, I was chairman of the firm, and uh, it was, I felt that this would really make us into something that was unique to, you know, to have had two majority leaders and heads of the finance committee and that kind of thing all in one place would make us really a potent entity. And it was true. It, it did. What, what really hurt the firm later on was 9-11 because we had so much aviation and communications work, all of which came to a halt after 9-11. Basically, it's, it regenerated itself, but it was a difficult period. 
You mentioned Joanne Coe. Yes. Uh, and you gave us uh, some adjectives to describe <laughs> the lady. I regret that uh, she's no longer with oh, us, so I she know. could be interviewed herself. That's a did, shame. Did other uh, members of his Senate staff come to the firm, or was she the only one? Well, uh, Marshall, uh, have you, you probably talked to Marshall Harris. Well, uh, he wasn't, I don't think, I don't know if he was on the Senate staff. She was the key person. Um, and. Uh, there was no question but that she not only had his ear, but she ran things. And uh, that trained, it was never late, I can tell you. <laughs> and Bob was very impatient about things. Uh, and he, he, was the, he embodied the do-it-now philosophy. And so we knew if there were a meeting, Bob would be on time. And if he called a meeting, you be on time. And uh, it was it, he, 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 that combination of toughness and human caring was is a fascinating complexity. Because he could be a, he was rough character. When he wanted something done, he wanted it done. And uh, we had some experiences where. He was less than happy with clients. And, you know, lawyers don't particularly want to tell their client, you don't have a very good case, or your behavior is not making it possible for me to represent you to a successful conclusion. Bob had no problems telling people that. And he could do it better than I'd ever seen because he would. First of all, he came in with that aura of, have it, of achievement and public, national, and international acknowledgement. So when he would say, uh, this isn't going to work, uh, I was uh, rather stunned accepting of that. Not always. It was not that everybody really liked but you know, you, I, I think the message is clear, and it was a, a unique thing for him. Just let it go. Right. I'm going to pause for just a second here. No problem. I think. Are we covering pretty much what Yeah, he's yeah, exactly. This is great. Um, two things I want to do. He is a. He was, I mean, have you spent much time with him? No, I, I, I mean, I've spent some time with him, but nothing. He's a piece of work, man. Oh, I know. I mean, have you ever seen him really mad? No, but I've <laughs> listened off the record. I'll tell you something. We had, we had a dispute. Wait, 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 wait. I don't want to put the. Okay. Tell me about the body language. Well, <clears throat> Bob enjoyed having substantive discussions or even administrative discussions. Some he enjoyed less than others. But when he thought that people talked too long or that the discussion was not getting anywhere, there was a bodily reaction that I always got to know when he'd l slightly lift up his left hand and move it horizontally. I knew one that his attention span had now concluded 
and second, he thought this was a waste of time and terminated. And soon as I'd see that, it was almost Pavlovian on his part. And I'd say, okay, this has been really a good discussion, everyone. Uh, we'll, we'll come back at another point and conclude. But it was something that was, I, I don't even know sometimes whether he knew he was doing it, but I did. And I, as soon as I saw that in, slight indication of the movement of the left hand, I said, this is over. <laughs> um, were there times when you had to sort of... Um, It sort of smooth off the rough. Yes, uh, there were. I mean, uh, you know, Bob's expectations of performance were very high, as you can imagine, and uh, th th there were times when he thought that either the work had been um, inadequately done or lacking in thoroughness, or lacking in any sense of political sensitivity, if it were, say, a regulatory issue, or um, uh, he would he, he would reflect it. I mean, and he wouldn't make any bones about it that he, he was in sharp disagreement. We spent a good deal of time together on this Federal Elections Commission issue. You, I don't know if you've read about it or heard about it, but you know there were questions of reasonable charges during a campaign over which he had no control but ostensibly was responsible for all that. And so we had all these long negotiations with the uh, Federal Election Commission. And quite frankly, uh, I, I can say as representing them that uh, I thought the Federal Election Commission had um, was making an effort to show that despite the person that was involved, we're going to be tough. Well, to go back and try to delineate uh, how much money was spent at f for food for the press corps at a particular stop and spend, we, I spent hours on this, uh, and it was a lot of money involved, but it was their assertions of, uh, it was staff assertions of what they thought couldn't be documented. Well, there's no campaign in this planet where you can document how much the taxis were or how much McDonald's hamburgers are or how many press people ate what. And that was the kind of thing we spent this inordinate amount of time on. And his frustrations with that were legitimate in my mind. And uh, we, we finally worked out a compromise, but it took uh, probably a year. Uh, it was very complex, as you can imagine. And needless to say, I, uh, the, the adverse publicity that you know, Senator Dole was supposed to pay back to the federal elections was unjustified. But that's the way Washington is. There is no such thing as uh, privacy for a public figure of note. 
and therefore we were, we were running into constant leaks. And it, he was very irritated, and he was justifiably irritated in my mind. I was, too. <laughs> and that was in relationship to the 96 campaign. Correct. And that went on for quite a period of time. And it, we, we resolved it finally, but it was, uh, it took a lot of his time. And it was, it, and it took, uh, I, I think, um, I think it, 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 it also hurt him because my experience with him was, and I, I don't say this casually, uh, that he is a person of genuine integrity about money, finance, which he understood and understands very well. There was never a time that I was with him where uh, there was any any effort to cut corners, to you know, uh, do anything but full transparency about what was going on, so that I think he, he was personally hurt by the allegations that in some way he was involved. Look, the fact is, no candidate knows exactly what's going on. That's how it is. It's a national campaign, and if you think he knew how many peanuts were sold at some public affair, uh, you know, in uh, Dubuque, it's absurd. But that they, when you accumulate that nationwide, and then you try to disprove what the assertions are, it's very difficult because you're looking at receipts and hundreds and thousands of receipts. So it was a very complicated area, and I think it, 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 it upset him because the assertion seemed to come at, through that uh, it was negligent or, uh, you know, in some way there had been a knowing violation of the fair elections, the federal elections laws, and that just wasn't the case. And we got it resolved, but it was, it was a, a constant annoyance. And uh, I certainly had my disputes with the federal election. Did did that case come up after he joined the firm? Yes. Or, so you didn't see well, it, or, or did no? I, I I didn't. It, the, the the assertions had generally been made before he came to the firm, uh, but w it came to a head when they they were saying you owe us how many millions of dollars for lack of receipts or coverage or whatever it may be. That was during the period he was at the firm, <clears throat> because I was doing the work. And and <coughs> and you, uh, the firm represented him. Yes, obviously. and I did. Uh, and the resolution well. of it all was we paid a certain amount that we thought was justifiable, and they accepted it finally. But it was, uh, you know, they wouldn't accept anything for a long time, and it was it was difficult. And I think it was emotionally draining for him, and I think it was an annoyance. Um, it was just too bad. And you knew this was coming up when he joined the firm. Well, I knew that there were. I, I it was never discussed. I knew there were assertions made by the. There had been assertions made. It was in every campaign. Let's be clear about that. I mean, you can say anything you want from the federal regulatory standpoint, but unless you've really been in a campaign, which is swift moving, complicated schedule changes, 
I mean, how do you justify the fact that you were going to go to Seattle, but when you got in the air, someone in Washington said it's more important that you go to Austin, Texas? Uh, what about the money that was spent there and you never went there, but you had, you had advanced people, you had scheduled people, you had policy people writing speeches, and you never used any of it? What was that all? That was the kind of thing we had to confront, and it was difficult. Did he bring other legal questions or issues uh, into the firm, or, or was that the only No, one? but as you uh, you may know, that w w early on there was this, this question about the, the Gingrich loan, uh, and, uh, you know, we, we knew about that uh, in general, but we didn't know that it would, it would kind of burst out into a public issue very shortly after he joined the firm. And... Uh, I think it was uh, an issue which appropriately disappeared, but in view of the fact that we paid a, a signing bonus, which we wanted to do, and it seemed to be in some way, uh, from a public standpoint, uh, tied to the, the Gingrich loan. It wasn't, and it was, but, you know, it's, it's the public, it's partisanship. It had to be, there had to be something scurvy about it. And uh, that's simply not the case. I mean, and I, I know because I was involved in it. So, but it was, it was, you know, as, as you know, uh, there were jokes about it. Ann Richards joked about it. Everybody joked about it. But no one took it very seriously as something that was a mark of, of negativity about Bob. You know, it just wasn't his style. So that was another example of his generosity then. Oh, it's Bob. I mean, if someone, it's, it's need, if people have need and it's genuine and he understands there's a need, he'll find some way to be helpful. The man is unique in that way. He doesn't want people to think he's soft. That doesn't fit. But he is. <laughs> I mean, he, underneath that, that crustiness, whatever he lost, uh, you know, after his, his uh, chairmanship of the party, uh, it, it became more reflective of what I think the true Bob is. Uh, so it, it was probably good he left. <laughs> You mean in 73 when he, he uh, left the RNC? Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about some of the cases that he worked on while he was with the firm. Well, he did uh, work for a number of uh, entities. Uh, I, I, I don't know whether it's appropriate to go into details, but he did a good deal of international work, as advisory work. Uh, in areas go, running from trade issues to security matters where a number of U.S. companies had issues overseas and they needed advice about how to deal with certain government regulatory issues, whether it was in Asia, I, I don't want to go into war, in the Far East or, uh, or the Middle East, he had, he was a very well-known figure. Therefore, 
he was asked to give advice on a number of things. It could have been from an antitrust issue in Taiwan to uh, a trade issue in Greece or Cyprus or something like that. Uh, and a, a number of things uh, came up that had to do with security issues that were companies were involved in various government contracts and they wanted advice about how to work with uh, foreign corporations that they were partnering with. And that, that was the kind of thing he did a good deal of and, and loved it, I must say. He was, he was great fun. And uh, the, the thing that was so pleasant about him, he was an unabashed promoter of things that he cared about, whether it was the World War II Memorial or uh, going with me to the Aspen Institute to speak about Dwight Eisenhower, whom he revered, uh, you know, or any, whatever we were involved in, there was a verve about it. And uh, so the kind of things he did was basically advisory stuff. and. He was very good at it. Um, people, you know, he could say, you can't do that. And quite often, as I said earlier, a client would say, well, I'll look elsewhere or something. But when Bob said, you sh can't or shouldn't do that, it was always like, well, give me a reason. And what he used to love is to call people together who had different disciplines in, the, in law practice and call him down to his fourth floor office and everybody would talk and he'd say, well, here's where we have, this is what we need to do. And that was the first time during some of these strategy sessions that I noticed the arm, the hand. And he just would not, if there was any irrelevancy and a waste of time, he'd either get up, walk out, or just... <laughs> And Joanne was the guardian, and she just said, "That's enough. We don't need him." It was fine, and he just kept saying that. But Bob ran his life, his own life, and uh, uh, you know, it was, it was very disappointing that I wasn't able to get him to come over with us here. But I want to talk about that in a moment, or have him talk about it. Um, did he ever appear before his colleagues on the Senate uh, on behalf of the client? No, you know, he did not want to do that. What he would do, which was very, very helpful, you know, he, he thought it was inappropriate. And, uh, but what he would do, uh, and without mentioning names, he would say, look, you or some of the other people, Harry McPherson, whoever might be involved in this, uh, here's what will be attractive to this senator or this leader in the House uh, based on the history that I know. Uh, if you take this point of view, you'll get a negative response. If you take into consideration that he has always supported X, Y, or Z, uh, you will find him much more receptive to what you're saying. He did a lot of that for us, and I go down there if I had something that we couldn't get resolved in a regulatory matter or case, I said, we've got to get an amendment or do something like that. And I'd say, who is the right person to go to? Uh, 
how does this this fit into the timing on appropriations or any finance bill or things like that? And he would say, this is, this is who you want to see. Uh, this is what will be most effective. You're late in the cycle of appropriations, and you probably have to get an earmark on something to get it done. And he would tell very easily, really shrewdly, what, uh, you know, what the ground rules were and what the pro he knew the procedures so well that you could think that if you've been around Washington, you know congressional process. You don't know anything unless you've been there. He was there, and he knew, and he knew the subcommittees as well as the committees, and he would say, don't go to see so-and-so, don't, this staff person's impossible, or that kind of, so, but he didn't like the idea of going up hat in hand and talking to people. He just didn't. He was uncomfortable with that. That's probably a big part of uh, the other question I was thinking of in this connection, and that is what other things he brought with him for having been a senator for so long to the firm. Are there yeah. other things that... Uh, well, I think he brought... First of all, he brought himself and his prestige. Then what he brought was this... the knowledge of the way things really work as opposed to what people may imagine is the way of the world. And what the way you succeed is through the subtleties of the process, not just because you understand what is a consent calendar or a joint referral or whatever it may be. It's what it surrounds that. And, and that's... It's impossible to define how valuable that is, uh, because uh, you know you can spend a lot of time thinking you're doing the right thing, and you're not, because you fail to understand that in some way or another the unwritten rules are, and this is how it works. And that's what where I found him invaluable. I mean, that is what he brought to the firm in addition to himself, just what he was. So tell me about uh, losing him to another firm. How did that unfold? Uh, well, um, I had assumed and hoped he would stick with us and, and join us. Um, I, there were a few things, I think. I don't know what exactly went into his head, but <clears throat> I was up negotiating about this firm up in Baltimore because it used to be known as Piper Marbury in the old days as an old line firm and I was up there talking to them and I, we wanted to make a decision. George had already committed that he was going to, Mitchell was, he, he would go with us and uh, so I thought I just kind of assumed Bob would but we'd had some problems along the way uh, but they weren't significant, I didn't think they were that significant problems there were two things that I think militated against him coming. One uh, was Elizabeth was running, and as he said to me, she has always supported me my entire political life. This is a chance to support her, and I want the time to support her, and this firm does not have it 
office, this firm where we are now, doesn't have offices in North Carolina. And I think it's important for me to have that kind of connection. But then he said, I also think that it's time to make a change, and I'm not sure I want to go to a firm that's that big. He didn't know what big was because we're only four or five times what we were at that point. But I think that was, it was a combination, and there were one or two people at, at the old firm uh, that he didn't particularly like. I didn't think it was that big an issue because everybody else liked him, and he liked almost everyone else. But I think there were a number of factors that kind of came together, and he said, I just don't want to be part of something that large. And I think at the core, and Elizabeth, I think Elizabeth, he wanted to support her. And justifiably, and uh, she's a nice person. Good person. So, did he come in one day to your office and say, "Look, I got bad news"? No, or how did it, it wasn't. Unfold? Oh no, no, I called him from Baltimore because I said, "Hey, look, Bob, let, let me just say, I really, you know, how we want you to be with us. So, here's the problem: we're going to have to make an announcement about this firm because it's beginning to leak out that we're thinking of merging into it." I need to know what you're going to do. I need to know this weekend because we're working on a on press one. And it was the first time he said, I'm not sure I want to do that. And then over the weekend he told me he didn't want to do that, that he was thinking of something else. And that was the way it was. It was, not, it was uh, very disappointing uh, to a number of us, me particularly. but. Uh, Bob is Bob. I mean, when he makes a decision in his head, it's a decision. What did he once say to me, which I thought was the best? We were having a real discussion about something, and, and we didn't agree, and um, it was perfect. And I kept on. And he looked at me and he said, there's some confusion here. You think we're having a dialogue. <laughs> it was great. So, and he made up his mind not to come and that was the end of it. Uh, but we, we certainly have remained very good friends and I am an admirer uh, beyond anything I can say. I mean, I think he's a unique symbol of the best in America and maybe the best in the world. He's just, what he's overcome and what he's done is remarkable. And internal caring is what I keep feeling. Did he go directly from your firm to Alston Bird or was there a period in there where he, he didn't? Well, I he can't didn't remember go? the exact timing, but it was, it, it was very close. I, I so he was already negotiating with them. Well, I think he, yeah, I think that, uh, I think he was. I, I, I never really got into a discussion with him about that. I don't know. Just briefly, what was your motivation for merging with uh, Piper? Uh, uh, a few things. Uh, one uh, was what I indicated before, that we went through a very difficult, period for about six months because of 9-11 and because of the loss of aviation. We had a, maybe the most significant 
domestic and international aviation practice in the country, and we had uh, a very significant telecommunications practice. That all dried up right after 9-11, and I had about 15 lawyers with relatively little to do. Now, the firm hung together, and, and everybody was willing to put in more capital and keep us going, and we got it back to profitability. Uh, but when I looked at the future, I said a firm of our size is going to have a lot of difficulty competing as firms become larger uh, with a more measurable number of different disciplines with which clients can see one, they have more than just a regulatory issue, they have a food and drug issue, they have an antitrust issue, or some SEC, whatever it may be. We need to have more of that. And so we just overtly started looking around. And there were a number of firms very interested in us, like eight of them. And uh, the thing, I guess, that was appealing to this firm at the time, it was much smaller than it was only about 700 or something. Now it's 35 or 3,600 lawyers. And we're in 24 countries. Uh, like, uh, I think we've got 64 offices all over the place. So it's a. Uh, it's become very, I think we may be the largest, we know we're the largest in the United States, maybe the largest in the world. <laughs> so maybe Bob was right, he thought it was too large. Uh, but uh, it was, it, I, I was, we were all disappointed in it. Um, but, you know, he was doing, as you know, while he was at the firm, he also had a number of things with his own uh, group his own investments and, uh, you know, his own projects that were, were not firm projects, they were his. And we all respected that because we knew it was part of him. And it was a, you know, you remember all the Viagra stuff, that was, it was, worth, it was great fun. Um, I, I want, I'm nearing the end, I think, of this, but I want to go back to Joanne Coe, just yep. because, sure. uh, as I say, she hasn't spoken for herself. Yeah, that's right. Um, <clears throat> characterize the interactions between the two of them. How, how did that work? And did they, it was, you ever it, witnessed a shot, shouting matches? Or <laughs> I don't know if it was shouting matches. I've certainly been witness where we had some significant difficulties. But, but, but let me say, Joanne, how do I describe it? I happen to have liked her a lot. I thought she was fun to work with. She, she scared, frightened, made people afraid a bit because she was so determined, so crisp, so tough, so well prepared whenever you had discussions with her. And she made decisions in Stanis. They were done, they were done. And she was the China Wall, as far as seeing Bob. She didn't want someone to see Bob. They just didn't see Bob. I don't care who it was. It could be his close friend John McCain. <laughs> she ran that office. And they, but it was very interesting because Bob really respected her, justifiably. I, I, he really did. It, they had an easy relationship. I, I, I always notice that. They, I, you never had a sense of strain. Uh, it was very easy. 
I think she knew that he did not want to become enmeshed in trivia or the administration of the office, and he knew that she was doing it in his interest and doing it stunningly well. And so it was easy. He, uh, and um, she, she was one, she was a tough bird, and I, I enjoyed her a lot. I mean, I got along with her just fine. We had an easy time. I'd say, damn, Joanne, don't, you're, and that kind of, at, and she'd say, it's done, what else, now move on, you know, and I'd say, fine. But she was great, I, and she did him a real service. It was a, a very, let me just say, the loss when she suddenly died. Um, it, I, I should have added that. One of the, I believe, subliminal reasons why Bob decided to move to another firm, he was somewhat at loose ends after she died. There was no clear management of the office. I believe, in my heart, may be wrong, that if she had not died, he'd probably have come with us. She would have found a way to make it more palatable to him and for us. But that was that was a supposition, and I couldn't document it. Bob told me I'm probably crazy when he hears it. He'd say, no, it's crazy. <laughs> um, with your perspective as a as a Democrat, I guess by instinct. Yes, <laughs> I have, however, voted for a number of Republicans, including Mac Mathias, who I always voted for because I think he was a great man, and a number of other Republicans. Um, and I, I was curious about you saying that Dole responded so positively to going out uh, to Aspen and speaking about Eisenhower. Was he sort of a Mr. Republican Dole uh, in your mind, and is that kind of a Republican still part of the political scene today, or? Well, there is. A, that's a hard question. I'll tell you why, from my perspective. It's like all the parties, you know. We've got the extremes in the Democratic Party, which I consider to be somewhat embarrassing. Maybe they're a force to make the more reasonable, moderate people uh, move more effectively. And in the Republican Party, think back about who some of the great Republican leaders were in the Senate. They were not the fringes. They were not the people who were the partisans who found something wrong with everything that was done by a Democrat or even the reasonable moderates. I, I really do believe that Bob represented the kind of rationality you see today in a Senator Lugar, something like that, where, you know, reasonable, uh, almost at all times, uh, sensible to other people's opinions. Bob had one quality which I didn't appreciate up front because he could be so crisp, and that was he was a very good listener. He Sometimes you'd think he wasn't listening, but he listened. Uh, and, you know, 
you could make an argument with him that he could change what he was prepared to do. That is the kind of Republicans, the moderate, reasonable Republicans. That I mean, I think, for example, uh, Ronald Reagan had a lot of that. He listened. Uh, people would respond to him because he he made some sense. And Dwight Eisenhower was someone that he he was a real leader, and it was you know uh, someone that that Bob saw during World War II that made a national and international difference. And uh, I I remember there were that when at one time Bob reminded me we were talking about something, and he brought back Eisenhower's comments about be alert to the concerns that attend the military-industrial complex. And that was something Bob was very alert to as a Republican. It didn't make it as an American more than anything else. That was the thing about it. Uh, we, 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 we've, gone, we're, we've come to a period right now where that kind of rationality and concern for the America and its position here and in the world for its people uh, it just isn't there, and uh, he was—he's different, and he represented a period of time where that kind of thing, from the Marshall Plan on, required farsightedness, and he had that. And it was not this little bickering over some little silly amendment, which was just put in to make sure that embarrassed some Democrat or someone on the fringes of the Europe. That wasn't part of it. It never was with him. We could go back to the early days. That was different. But when he became a real leader, that was not him at all. Good. Okay, uh, just a couple of other things to, uh, to add to this. Um, talk a little bit about his personal life. Well, uh, my my knowledge of you know his personal life uh, was really limited to that period of time when I got to know him during the period of the firm, um, and I talk about you know his daughter worked over at the firm when when he was there, and that was a good relationship. Robin, I think, was uh, supportive and helpful to him. Um, Certainly, he and Elizabeth led a, a very different kind of life because they were both so busy all the time. But I never heard a comment from him other than supportive of her in every way, and certainly from her the same thing about him. But the interesting part about his personal life, in a sense, was, I mean, who were some of his really good friends? It was people like Bob Strauss, Bob and Helen Strauss. And here was Bob, chairman of the Democratic Party at one point. They had apartments together at Bar Harbor down in Florida, and they used to spend a good deal of time together. And they always were close during the whole period, because Bob's a very good friend of mine, one of my best friends. and. And so that was a, another attachment, I think, that, that uh, Bob Dole and I had. But that's how he was. I mean, uh, you know, it's the George McGovern, Bob Strauss. His personal life was personal. 
and it was human, and it was connecting with people that he enjoyed, and uh, and he was just that way. I, he he never picked friendship according to parties that I knew about. He had a lot of more close friends in the Republican Party, obviously, but uh, it was it was he was, he was just not that way. That's one of the things that I always found so endearing about Bob was that people were people. He, you could put a label on him and he'd reject it. Uh, and he, did, he didn't dig this uh, stuff about, oh, this person's a, a libertarian or this person's a conservative or this. He, he, he talked about the people that you know, he liked. And there were some people he didn't like. He was very upfront about that, too. I won't mention that. <laughs> Um, did you have personal time with him, or was your interactions with him primarily professional? Well, we spent, uh, it was, it was uh, both. Uh, you know, we'd get together and just the two of us go to lunch and spend some time together. Um, we had some dinners together, uh, and, you know, Elizabeth came around, I got to know her. Uh, well, and then I represented the Red Cross, as I think I told you during that dreadful period. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, Bob was the same whether he was in the office doing some legal work, which, which he always said he was very funny about that. Well, come and see me. And I'll find a lawyer to help you. <laughs> He's always denigrating, you know. He was very smart, as you know, uh, very inventive. But his personal life was his personal life, um, and it, it did not have to do with party. I, I never saw that. So, uh, and and the Strauss connection was real. I mean, they were very close friends. So. Um did you have times when you discussed the uh, outcome of Redskins game, or yeah, we, we uh, yeah we 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 didn't always talk business. I mean, that, you know, we we talked about the things that we were both interested in. Uh, as you know, he was always uh, very concerned about Vietnam. We talked a good deal about that. Um, as you know, he also was working on the missing people in Kosovo, Bosnia, uh, Herzegovina, and uh, he really did spend a lot of time. We talked about that, how difficult it was, because you know he went over there and helped and was there when they were opening up the mass graves and that kind of thing. So we talked about a good deal about uh, the needs in the world that. Uh, and, and it, it, uh, when he would talk about what he had seen in, uh, in Herzegovina and, and Bosnia, and that, it was, it was you, you just poured out of him. Uh, and of course, as you know, one of the things that was always near and dear to his heart was Armenia, because it was the doctor who took care of him in Chicago was an Armenian. And we talked about, a lot about that and the problems that Armenia was having with Turkey. And uh, that was not a professional thing as such. It was a personal thing with him. And he was Armenia. I mean, uh, and we talked about that. Uh, 
some, but there were uh, there, there, things grew out of his broad interests. You know, he he uh, whether it was finance or international affairs or military, it all ran together as uh, with the, the capability in his mind of. Uh, weaving it into what we should do. The thing I really liked about it, and working with him, just and, and this was personal as well as at the firm. Uh, you always left with a conclusion. He was the king of therefores. You'd have a discussion, and you'd end up with a therefore what. And I really love that because so much talk and it's, it's just generality and, and uh, obfuscation. And, but with Bob, at some point it would always be, and so, or what, and what do we do? What is your proposal? That, I love that. And it, it was rare. I mean, there were so many politicians and national figures that just talked. Bob talked but wanted to do it now. That was his basic slogan. So it was wonderful. Um, everyone mentions Bob Dole's sense of humor. Right. But few people come up with instances thereof. So well, talk about the nature of his humor, okay. if anything. It's, um, first of all, there are people who are calculatedly humorous. They think in advance about what will be a funny line, or they hear jokes and write them down and recount them and tell them the best they can. That was not, that is not Bob. Bob's humor is spontaneous, taking what seems like an ordinary issue into something that is, he converts it into being funny, ironic, silly, uh, and the reason you none of us think of Bob and, and telling specifics about his humor, it's this, how do you describe it? It is a spontaneous outburst of making fun of some issue himself or you, but it's not a calculated funny story. He wasn't like Ronald Reagan told stories Bob didn't tell stories. It would just he would just be funny, uh, and uh, I, I, I may mention that you know when uh, they were hanging Mitchell's portrait uh, in the Senate, and Bob was introducing him. At which time Heather and two of George's kids got up and started running around, and Bob was in this serious discussion of how much. Senator Mitchell, he contributed to the welfare, and suddenly stopped me, saw the kids running around, and he said, well, one thing I can say for you, George, you don't need Viagra. <laughs> but that was the, I, I mean, I just, you, it was instantaneous. It was something that would hit him at the moment and just be funny. And a lot of it was either self-deprecating or uh, taking something which had a, an appearance of being very serious and probably wasn't, and he'd found a way to make it look absurd uh, without arguing with words that it was absurd. That's why you don't hear stories about Bob saying this was funny or 
he do, there wasn't that wasn't his his humor. That's why none of us can sit and say unless you unless you played um, uh, a speech he gave where he just suddenly stopped and started making some other comments, or the, you know the Mitchell kind of thing. That's how I mean you couldn't listen to it, but that's how it is. It's different. Sometimes humor can be kind of cruel. Uh, yep. Was was no, he sometimes no, given to that? I didn't. I never saw that. I mean, I think early on, some of his humor may have been pretty cutting when when he was chair of the party. Yeah, I think it probably must have been. But I never saw him convert a comment into something that was cutting or cruel or unfair. I mean, it could be devastating, but it usually wasn't on a, a personal diminution kind of comment. It wasn't his style. It was just taking something and making it look a little silly. And he had that in him. And he and Ann Richards were, <clears throat> they were both in the firm, and that was the great moments where, when the two of them had discussions. We, we once had everybody go, because of my involvement with the Aspen Institute, we had a retreat of the firm at the Y Island Plantation over here. And we decided one Sunday morning, um, this, this, okay, I have to be careful, but this, this was Bob. I said, Bob, we're gonna, we want to have a debate with George Mitchell and Ann and you and Benson and Dan Coates about politics and about presidential. He said, when? And I said, well, the only time we could figure it out is if you could come over there early Sunday morning. We're going to be over there for a few days and do a lot of planning. He said, oh, I don't know if I can do that. I said, why not? I don't want to go in. I said, oh, okay. But I really want you there. Hesitation, he said. Well, it's one way of missing one Sunday of church with Elizabeth. <laughs> it's that kind of thing. But it was, I don't know if that, but that's the way he was, you know, just make, enjoy fun and, and make fun of yourself and those around. But it was not ever harmful, you know, that kind of thing. So. Did he enjoy other people's sense of humor? Oh, very much so. Very much so. It wasn't like I'm the only foot, but it, yeah, he did. He did, and uh, he just would look. There's something I believe is the life spirit. Bob Dole embodies the best of the life spirit, the God-given life spirit. That's Bob Dole, and if it's funny, that's okay. If it's serious, that's okay. But it's part of being alive. That's Bob. And that's why I think people like me just suddenly said, I found a compatriot that I adore. <laughs> what else can I tell you? Great, great. And I suppose part of the reason for that spirit of life has comes from all those months sitting in a bed. Oh, I think... Yeah, I think I, I real. That's a good point because I, he has known suffering. 
and uh, he's overcome uh, the woes of realizing that he's been disfigured and uh, rendered less than complete physically and having overcome that and you think of what this man did with the disability that he has had it's it, it's incalculable uh, and so he, he it's it's almost like a physical redemption and uh, it's it's an amazing story the whole thing and I think I, I really believe it was somewhat innate but also a result of his own internal turmoil that he has so much caring for people and their, their difficulties. You have no idea everybody who had a problem, everybody who had a physical problem, right? We go to Bob. And if I called up and said, you know, I think one of the people here has a prostate problem, I, you could be very, I told him to call me right now. And he'd get on the phone with Mike. There'd be out people outside of the office that say, "What do you think? Should, could I talk to Bob?" Oh, absolutely, immediately. You know, if there are any and I think it comes from having suffered so much himself and overcome it. He wants to help others to overcome it. He's it's remarkable. Good, rare bird. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I hope I got it 